John chapter 20. We have come as far as verse 24. Jesus on Sunday, Resurrection Day, Easter, had appeared first to Mary Magdalene, then to the other women, then to the two on the road to Emmaus, and to Peter. The women had gone to the disciples and told them they had saw Jesus and said the disciples didn't believe them. They thought what they were saying was nonsense. And then last week we saw Jesus finally coming to the ten. Judas had, was gone and Thomas wasn't with them. And as he was there with them, he said peace unto them, showed them his hands and his feet. They realized it was him. He told them, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Uh, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted unto them. Whoever sins to you maintain, those sins are maintained. And now it's going to tell us Thomas now was not with them, who was one of the twelve. A week goes by, and eight days later the Lord comes when Thomas is there. So I'll begin reading in verse 24. It says, But Thomas... One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Well, except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said unto Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So we come to this Man, Thomas, who we have, you know, almost willingly called Doubting Thomas, because that's a great consolation to us, because even as Christians, you and I have doubts now and then, and we love the fact that one of the disciples was just like us, so we call him Doubting Thomas. Um, he was one of the twelve. It mentions that here. Jesus prayed all night, Matthew, Mark, and Luke can tell us. And then after that prayer, praying, seeking the Father all night, he chose twelve, and Thomas was one of them. He was one of the inner group. Traveled with Jesus for three years, had seen the miracles. You can imagine the things that he beheld, the loaves and the fishes, Lazarus, the, the rebuking of the wind and the sea, and so forth with Jesus all through those things. But if we want to kind of know any real details about Thomas, only John gives us those things. Only John gives us information about him. Doubting Thomas, we know he was resolute. 
maybe even in a depressing sense, but we know when he made up his mind, he made up his mind. John tells us in chapter 11, when Jesus had delayed, Mary and Martha had called him up to Bethany because Lazarus was sick. Finally, Lazarus passed and Jesus says, let's go up, let's go up to Jerusalem. And the others are saying, hey, Lord, there's going to be trouble you go up there. And Thomas is the one who says, let's go with him. We'll die with him. I don't know if that was depressing or that was bravery or just being resolute, but you got to give that to Thomas. Thomas said, we're going to go up there and he's going to die. Let's go up and die with him. Those were his feelings in regards to Jesus. If he's going to go up there and die, I'm going to go up, I'm going to die with him. That's not doubt. Then we have him, John tells us in chapter 14, where Jesus there it tells says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe God, believe also me. My father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but lo, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also, whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas speaks up again, and we're so thankful he does. He says, Lord, we don't know, is he being doubting here? Or, you know, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How come we know the way? And we're glad that he does that because thank you, Thomas. Then we can hear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Thanks, Tom. And now we have this incident here. It says, but, verse 24, and those are always significant in the Bible when we see a but. It's in counterdistinction to everything I've just said. But, uh, Thomas called Didymus, which means twin. We don't know whether he had a twin sister or a twin brother. I think the Lord leaves it that way so all of us can be his twin uh, because we find those emotional struggles in our faith sometimes. Um, Thomas called Didymus, it says, was not with them when Christ came. He, he wasn't there. Um, we show him, he shows up again in John chapter 21, verse 2 and verse 27. The last time we hear about him and 2 and 27, and this, he's there at meetings from now on, it seems. Acts chapter 1, he's there in the upper room when, the, when Pentecost takes place. It's, he's named, he's there with the disciples. So he missed this one meeting. This was a significant meeting. This was Easter Sunday when Jesus appears to the rest of the apostles. Why wasn't he there? We're not sure. He's the kind of guy, maybe he had seen the body of Christ. Maybe he had watched him taken down from the cross. Maybe he had watched him suffering. Maybe he was within some perimeter when Jesus was being scourged. We don't know. He's going to mention the nails and the hole in his side. So he's aware of the condition of the body of Jesus in one way or another. And he's having a hard time believing that body's walking around, that it's come back to life. And it says he was not there with them. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. There's an indictment here, kind of hidden here. It says, Thomas, one of the 12. Now, even though Judas is dead, they're still called the 12 here and there. The idea is 
When the 12 gather, the 12 are supposed to be there when the 12 get together. But Thomas wasn't there, he says, one of the 12 uh, when Jesus came. So he missed that initial encounter with the risen Christ. Um, Nothing tells us why that took place. And I think probably because the, the lesson we need to learn from it is that we should gather when God's people gather because there the Lord will always be in the midst. And whatever our reason is, it's not good enough in a sense. Alexander McLaren says, there is an isolation that misses his presence. There's a time when, for one reason or another, we may pull aside and not be in fellowship. And, and, and in that, we may miss. You know, every joint, every ligament supplies. The body of Christ is important. There are times when we might pull aside, and it might not be the right time to do that. Interesting, Arthur W. Pink says this, in regards to this, but Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. He said, we may learn a lesson from this. I venture to apply these words, dear friends, to our gatherings for worship. The worst thing that a man can do when disbelief or doubt or coldness shrouds his sky and blots out the stars is to go away by himself and shut himself up with his own perhaps morbid or at all events, disturbing thoughts. The best thing that he can do is to go amongst his fellows. If the sermon does, not, uh, does him no good, yet the prayers and the praises and the sense of brotherhood will help him. If a fire is going out, draw the dying coals together, and they will make each other break into flame. Solitude is not the best medicine for any disturbed or saddened soul. Your peculiarities will not be subject to the gracious process of pruning, which society with believers, especially the, the Christian hearts, will bring to them. And in every way, you will be more likely to miss the Christ than if you were kindly with your kind and went up to the house of God in company. J.B. Phillips makes this remark about Thomas not being there. He said, why did Thomas stay away from this meeting? Why do people stay away from meetings of the assembly of God's people? Did he say, I'm too busy, I'm tired, I think I'll stay home, it's too dangerous to go, I think it's courting trouble to gather in groups, Given the political and religious climate, I can get more out of things staying home and reading my Bible and then thinking through all this going on in that meeting. If Peter's there, I'm not going to be there. <laughs> After all he did, he'll be up front acting bold as brass. I know that guy. If there won't be any sense of the Lord's presence if he's there, it will be dead and dull, so why bother going? Um, I want to say, stay here and get the news out about what's happening. I want to hear the news about what's happening with the Sanhedrin. You know the excuses. Maybe it's going to rain. But what Thomas missed 
John is blunt about, but, and the buts of the Bible are significant, but Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. He missed it. He missed him. Whatever else he was doing that night wasn't worth it. He missed a meeting with Jesus. And that is always so on the strength of Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, that says where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. On the strength of Matthew 18, 20, we can positively affirm that people who absent themselves from the meetings of the church always miss a meeting with the Lord and fresh revelation from him. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers and scholars, said the reason for his absence, no matter how justifiable, was a mistake. In the hour of darkness, we should not forsake the gathering together of ourselves. It tells us that in Hebrews, where it says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and especially as you see the day approaching. Do you see the day approaching? The idea is these are difficult times. I look around. Politics, to me, is discouraging and depressing and unbelievable. The economy is discouraging. The price of gas is discouraging. The price, you know, of, of groceries is discouraging. And the, 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 the political scene morally is discouraging. What's happening in the Middle East, Ukraine, is discouraging. I look at uh, billionaires sitting around thinking they can run the world because well, I'm not smart enough. I'm a peon, and they're going to make all the decisions for my life. That's all discouraging. And, and for any of you that are listening maybe on radio or you're listening to the study on some media, look, th- these days are days that would tell us how important it is for us to gather. Because whatever else goes on all week, and no matter how many people think I'm out of my mind, I love to gather on Sunday with thousands of like-minded, out-of-their-mind people. (laughs) It's medicine, and it's good, and it's healthy, particularly in the dark days that we're living in. I think it's important. The Bible thinks that it's important. Thomas wasn't there. He was one of the 12. That's kind of an indictment. He should have been there. Now, I'm thankful he wasn't because of the lessons that I get to learn as I go through this. It says, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him. Now, we don't know. Is that later that day? It wouldn't seem because it was already evening. Is that Monday the next day? Is it all week? It says, the other disciples therefore said unto him, said unto him, there's imperfect active. It means once they started saying it, they kept saying it. So the other disciples, it seems, are saying to him all week, we have seen the Lord. Beautiful there. We have seen. It's a perfect tense. It means we we, we saw and we're still seeing. We 
The Greek scholar from Moody says this should read, we have seen the Lord and he is still vivid in our minds. I, you know, they're saying, Thomas, and they keep telling him, we've seen him. You, you can't believe it. We, you know, he was there in front of us. We can, I can still see him. He was there, you know, and they're going back and forth with this, with Thomas, telling Thomas these things. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands, notice the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, by the way, that's the only time in the New Testament we have the word nails used in regards to crucifixion. So thank you, Thomas. You've given that to us as well. We know he was crucified. We know historically they were nailed to that. But Thomas is the only one who specifically gives us that word that Christ was nailed and there were nail scars in the word hand can be hand or wrist that he was nailed to the cross. And he says, except I see it for myself, because they must have been saying, Thomas, he was there. He, he ate with us. He said, hey, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as, as you see me have. Handle me and see. You can see that I'm real. And Thomas is now saying, I, I ain't going to believe it unless I can do that myself. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in all his hands or I can thrust my hand into his side, which speaks of how, what a, a wound that must have been to be able to thrust your hand into that wound itself. He says, I'm not going to believe unless I can see that. But the interesting thing here, this battle is a battle of the wills. Some people might say, you know, if, you know I, 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 I can't believe it. Thomas is saying, I won't believe it. It's different. In fact, he says, unless I can have the experience I want, I will not. The Greek there is, I will not not. It's called the oime, the double negative. I will not not believe, which means no way. It ain't ever going to happen. Don't even expect me to believe it. I'm not. I am not. So it's a, the, it's a battle of the will here. It's a battle of the will. You know, there are people who, who for 2,000 years have believed without seeing. It's the last thing he says here in this scene. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Thomas could have believed. He heard these were his compatriots. These were his fellow apostles. And he just, he says, I will not, there is no way, that maybe they're getting on his nerves. They kept telling him over and over, maybe this has been going on all week, you know, and Thomas is just, he's saying, it ain't going to happen. Just shut up. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Ain't no way I'm going to believe unless I can put my finger there and I can put my hand there. And if that ain't happening, I ain't believing. Should I do it again? Okay. <laughs> You get the idea, this attitude that he has here. <clears throat> I don't know if that's doubting Thomas. That's obstinate Thomas. That's for sure. And then it says this. After eight days, again, his disciples were within. Second Sunday, second Lord's resurrection day. They're gathered eight days later. After eight days, again, his disciples were within Notice Thomas is with him. He's, he's arguing with him, but he ain't missing any more meetings. Again, then came Jesus. 
the doors being the word shut again, the doors are locked. And he stood in the midst like he had before. And he says, peace be unto you. So this is eight days later, it tells us, Sunday to Sunday. Um, the festivities have ended. Pilgrims, you know, that had come for the mandatory feast of Passover. It was unleavened bread, feast of first fruits, kind of all wrapped up. They're leaving. They're going back to countries and areas of Israel they had come from. No doubt the disciples themselves were preparing to leave and to go back to Galilee. Jesus had said to them, he says, um, all ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. It tells us that the angels, when they came to the women, said, go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall you see him. So they saw him one time now, a week before this. Thomas wasn't there. This is eight days later. The feast is over. People are dispersing. The doors are locked again. Maybe they have more anxiety relative to the Jews because there's less people there for them to sort through. And, uh, and, and the, this is going to be their last meeting in Jerusalem. After this, they get together one more time. It seems they're going to be heading out of town. And we don't know where they were that week. Obviously, they didn't stay locked in a room for eight days. They had to take care of, you know, practical things. Were they talking to people? Where did they go? Were they coming back to that room every night? We don't know. Where did Jesus go for eight days? If you could go anywhere in the universe you wanted to go, where would you go for eight days? You know, where was Jesus for the Wherever he was... He heard Thomas say, unless I put my finger in the, in the holes in his hands, thrust my hand into his side, I ain't going to believe. Wherever he was, he was listening. His ears are better than ours. I guess he can hear from great distance. But he heard that as he hears everything that we say. One of the things we learn through Thomas is just think of some of the foolish things that we've said in our lives. He's heard them. He's heard them. Think of some of the things we prayed for. I can think of some of the things I prayed for that I'm so thankful he didn't answer. Meantime, while you're praying them, you're thinking, why aren't you answering? You know, um, Wherever he was that week, he's, he's listening. It's an interesting, and it's certainly something he's teaching them about his presence even when they don't see him. They're, they will all be martyred. They will all lay down their lives for him. They will all learn that even though we're not seeing him, he's there with us, and that would be immensely important in their lives. <clears throat> After eight days, the disciples were within. Thomas is with them now this time. And then came Jesus, the doors again being locked. 
he stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Now, that's what he had said before. It's interesting as we go through in each one of these circumstances, he says it three times. First time he says, peace be unto you, it says they're terrified. He appears, they're terrified, and it says he shows them his hands and his feet, and it says, then were they glad when they perceived that it was the Lord. And the peace be unto you there is peace with God. You know, you all fled that night. You, you all left me. You know, Peter, you denied me. You know, and he, and he shows them his hands and his side and says, peace be unto you. That peace was the price has been paid. When he said shalom then, that word had never been used in the history of Israel like it was used in that room at that time. It never had the meaning it had then. Shalom, peace between you and God. I'm the Lamb of God, paid the price, laid down my life, peace. Then he says, peace be unto you, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So then there's a peace in going. Look, you, ha you and I have peace with God. That's a, you know, a fact, a truth that's given to us in the scripture. And to enjoy that, certainly we need to receive that. To, to walk on the water, you have to step out of the boat, you know, to walk on the water. But there's not only peace of God, there's peace, the peace with, not only peace with God, there's the peace of God. And that's no matter what the circumstances may be in our lives, there's a peace that we can experience. And it's the peace of God. And it surpasses understanding. It's, it's greater. You know, I, if, if I can understand a situation, not have any peace, what's that worth? But if I can have peace in the circumstance, even though I don't understand, that's worth a lot more. This time, this peace is relative to restoration. This is the guy who wasn't there. This is the guy who spoke foolishly. This is the guy who stumbled, who doubted. And again, it's the same word, peace unto you. And then it says he showed Thomas his hands and his side. He must have extended his hands so Thomas could see the holes and said to Thomas, go on, put your finger in the holes. And then it says he showed him his side, which means he had to turn sideways and expose the bottom of his rib cage and say, go on, Thomas, thrust your hand into that wound. Isn't it interesting? Jesus, when he deals with the two on the road to Emmaus, it says he opens the scripture, he goes through Moses and the law and the prophets and so forth. When he deals with this one disciple, he condescends to his individual need, still speaking peace. But what he does here is he shows him his hand and his side. This one man who loved him, who was willing to die with him, who he had spent three years with. He doesn't give him the fine points of prophecy. The peculiarities, this is what Isaiah 53 means, this is what Psalm 22 means, this is what Zechariah was talking about. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give him all the finer points of the theology of redemption. He doesn't just take him through all that. Nothing wrong with those things. 
But he says, Thomas, He doesn't pronounce an anathema upon Thomas. He doesn't exclude him. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't quench a smoking flax. He had come to restore, to lift up, to shed light. Jesus suited himself to the needs of Thomas. And in his demonstration, Thomas is thinking, you heard what I said, and you love me still? You heard my arrogance and my stubbornness. You know, when if you hear somebody talking about you, you listen, don't you? You pretend like you're not, but if you're... If you're five foot away from a conversation and somebody starts talking about you, they don't know you're there. You don't say, excuse me, you probably don't want to say that while I'm standing here. No, you listen. He loves us. He listens. And when the circumstances come in our lives and we're saying, why is this happening? Why wasn't he there? I can't believe he came to you 10 before I got there. Why didn't he wait? Doesn't he love me? Why didn't he wait till I get there? You know, why is this happening in my life? Why is my kid sick? If you love me, why is this falling apart? If you love me, why am I in this pain? If, 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 if you really are my Lord and Savior, love me, how could this difficult thing be happening in my life? And the thing is, you know, when we're in that situation with the Lord, like doubting Thomas, when we're in that situation and we... we don't know what he's doing. The instruction of scripture is always to fall back on what you do know. Whenever you're facing what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. And when you fall back on what you do know, you see his hands, you see his side. You see, whatever contradicts his love, that he laid down his life for you, that he tells his disciples that whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me, the broken bread and the cup, and do that as often as you gather, because when you do that, you show forth my death until I come. He, he stoops down and don't you wish all Christians were like that don't you wish first service was like that these are all wonderful Christians at this no don't you wish Christians when you were doubting or struggling or you weren't where you're supposed to be or you know Jesus he, he doesn't come there's no scolding here there's something that goes straight to his heart that's for sure because Jesus is going to say Thomas You've seen and you believe. Doesn't say you've touched. That's what Thomas said he needed. You've seen, so you've believed. Jesus draws close. He's always extending to us those things from his person <clears throat> that his children need. 
Again, I've raised children, grandchildren now, between the last service and the privilege to put my arm around one of my granddaughters. If she had hurt herself or she was crying, I'd want to be able to do that. I think of the parents in Israel whose young children, nine-year-old, three-year-old, have been held hostage. And the pictures, and finally with the parents with their arms around that child again. Greater love hath no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. He showed them his hands and his side. That's our Savior. Aren't you glad? That's our Lord. Now, it says then, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And then he says, be not faithless, but believing. The tenses there are beautiful. And the idea is, it's a present imperative. You must stop being or becoming Unbelieving, my Bible says faithless, but becoming believing. There's a process. Unbelief and faith are never static. They're never still. Our unbelief will always be deepening or our faith will always be deepening. They will always be morphing. They will always be changing. They're never still. They're never static. It will always be diminishing or increasing. And I think we have to pay attention. You know, if we just feel, you know, if we, if we let go, well, I'm not believing, ah, I don't, ah, I'm not going to, ah, you know, th that will go in that direction. If we're on the other side, we're thinking, you know, I, I don't know why he would love me. I don't know why, but I know, you know, I know he died for me. Then, then faith is increasing. Jesus says that here. He says, he says, be not becoming more faithless. So he wasn't completely faithless. But be thou becoming more and more believing is the idea in the, in the, the language. It's beautiful. And Thomas answered. We, he doesn't tell us he put his finger in. I don't think he shot his mouth off. I don't think he was all bark and no shove here. Didn't put his hand in. And Thomas said unto him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. It's the only time Jesus is called God in all four Gospels. Isn't that interesting? Thomas wasn't there when he should have been there. But when he finally sees Jesus, he rises above the rest. It's the first post-resurrection proclamation of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's clear. And it's, look, it's personal. My Lord. It's all that matters. You know, I just know in my relationship with him, my Lord. I would never have traded my relationship with Jesus for anybody else's relationship with Jesus, no matter how famous they were, because I'm really not sure about what they got. But I'm kind of sure about what I have. My Lord and my God. Listen, my Lord, if you call him Lord, that means you're his servant. You can't call somebody Lord and not serve. 
Most of our problems are lordship problems. In our home, in our marriage, where we work, where we go to school, our attitudes, our morals, most of them are lordship problems. He says, my Lord and my God. If he's your Lord, he's the Lord of your heart. If he's your God, he's on the throne of the universe of the heavens. Remarkable that he says that here. And Jesus then comes back and says to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen, not touched, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. It's not a reproof. He's stating something there that is reality. It wasn't any different than the rest of them. The rest of them didn't believe when the women told them. They thought they were being foolish. The rest of them had to see as well. That's why Jesus appeared to them. He says it to Thomas now. Thomas, because thou hast seen, thou hast believed. And this is the last beatitude in the New Testament, in the Gospels, from the mouth of Jesus. You know, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst from righteousness. You know the Beatitudes. This is the last one in the Gospels. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Those who have seen and believed are blessed. Those who have not seen and believed are blessed indeed. What he's saying here, this is going to be the whole history of the church. These guys are all going to be martyred. They're all going to lay down their lives for Christ. You know, they spent 40 days with him. They saw the resurrected Christ. They dialogued. He demonstrated with many infallible proofs who he was. They were all going to lay down their lives. They're going to be the foundation, laying the foundation of the church. But from then on, from the, as the book of Acts comes on through the history of the church, the church has believed not by seeing. Paul would say, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen, because the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are not seen are eternal. It would tell us this in the book of Hebrews. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. It is the substance, substance, get one of those etymology books of the English language for yourself. Substance means, you know, sub means under. Stance is to take a position. Substance is what stands under. Faith is the evidence of the substance, what's standing under things hoped for. Faith, the evidence of things not seen. Peter, who was in the room here, would say this of Christ. He said, whom not having seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So Jesus himself says this. Thomas, because you've seen, you believe. But then he gives this to you and I. This is ours. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. That's ours. No one can take that from us. Look, they had a particular blessing in their personal interaction with him. Eyewitnesses. 
John would write, that which we have seen, that which we have heard. You and I have a particular blessing that they can never have, that is exclusive to us because we have believed without seeing. And we need to be careful. Look, the, the faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're living in a time that is desperate for sensation, whether it's sexual, whether it's in the film industry, whatever it might be. You know, people want experience, and too many in the church want supernatural experience. Our, you know, our assurance is we have, we're blessed because we believed without seeing there are going to be supernatural experiences. They're on the docket. The next supernatural experience we won't see because it'll happen in a twinkling of an eye and we'll realize when we're on the other side, when we're on the mezzanine. But there's going to be two prophets, I believe, Moses and Elijah. They're going to be miracles that happen, signs and wonders, you know, water turned to blood, fire called down, you know, well, those things. More than that, for the unbelieving world, this logical Western culture that thinks it's above all of this with all of these controlagarchs that are trying to, you know, manage our lives and our finances and our well-being because we're not smart enough to take care of ourselves. My, my blessing is that I know that all of the conspirators are going to get conspirated <laughs> and they're going to wander after this beast whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life and it says they're going to marvel after him. And Second Thessalonians 2 tells because the Lord, because they, rec they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Therefore, God gives them over to believe the lie. And he grants to the Antichrist that he might perform lying signs and wonders. That's going to overtake the world when we're gone. But for you and I today, imagine this. We believe without seeing. God, through his word, is able to get to the deepest part of our being and change us. And change us. There's a blessing for us today. Circumstances may not agree with it. Everything else may try to contradict it. We might find ourselves from time to time doubting, struggling. But he condescends to our need. He restores and he heals. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He stoops down to us and draws us back to himself. He shows us afresh his love. And he blesses us with fresh faith. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> and look, if you're here today and you've never come to Christ, you determine that. Like Thomas said, I will not. Ain't no way. And if you're here today saying in your own heart, ain't no way I'm going to believe this. Besides, this guy's put me to sleep. This was too long. Ain't no way. You can do that. Or you can say, you know what? I'm willing. Your decision. And if you'd like to talk to one of the pastors, pray with us, ask Christ to be your Savior today, please come up after the service. We'd love to pray with you. Father, I know you have heard we put these things before you. Lord, you put these things to the page. You've preserved them. You've handed them to us this morning. 
your church through the centuries, through the millennium, have, Lord, just counted this a treasure. And we're thankful for it. We're thankful for, Lord, uh, Thomas. We're thankful for the way that you loved and worked in the lives of men and women throughout the scripture. And we ask, Lord, that you would build our faith today, Lord. Though we've not yet seen, we know we will. Lord, we pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.